G'day everyone, it's James Davis from the Paxade Academy again. I've got Larry from MSP CFO. How you doing, Larry? Hey, how are you, James? Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for joining me. Where are you based? Uh, I'm actually in uh, in the Northeast, in US, in, in Connecticut. We have a fully remote company. I happen to be in Connecticut. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking your time out today. And I'm excited to have a conversation with you because I want to talk to you about understanding data in people's businesses so they can make better decisions to make more money. And what better what better person to talk to than someone that's built a business around reporting that data. So I thought I'd jump in and ask you the question about what you're seeing around the industry in terms of the maturity level of people making data-driven decisions. That's a good question. So we are seeing um, both an improvement and almost equally important a desire for an improvement. One of the big drivers right now for sort of the mid-tier and up MSPs, uh, for better or for worse, you can make an argument as to whether this is uh, a macro trend you enjoy or don't enjoy, is the consolidation and the M&A activity. So people are always now saying, listen, this is not a 20-year journey. What can I do in the next three to five years? And I really am, am motivated to make an improvement because hopefully there might be a check for me. Excuse me, we're working through a cold. Um, so we see a lot of people coming to us with a desire for better data. Now, when we talk to new clients, uh, one of the concerns that we get, we actually get a comment very often, which I almost always ignore, which is, this is great, but my data is not good enough. Or, this is great and my data is perfect. Uh, both of those statements in, in my mind, if I hear them out of someone's mouth, mean almost nothing to me. Because we've looked at, you know, at this point, probably close to a thousand different companies' data. Uh, and people are, I will tell you, are really a bad judge of how good their own data is. Um, the people that we talk to, I would say 90% uh, of them have data good enough to start analyzing it. 10% they just need to do work. You know, if they don't have engineers putting in time, if they're not invoicing out of the PSA because that's where all the data we, we use come from, then we say, listen, you need to work on your operations. This is not ready for, for what we're doing. But most people have little gaps in it, and they have data that's workable but can be improved upon. And when I say workable, I mean they do put all their time in, but they don't put the type, subtype, and item on tickets. They don't break out all their agreements properly. And, you know, it's funny you say this because one of the things we as a data company, if they have little gaps in their data and they're missing costs, we take care of that. We can help them work through things like that. If they don't have their board set up properly, if they don't have their type, subtype, and item, if their engineers aren't motivated to understand how to put time in, we actually frequently will say, listen, there are some great people, Paxate Academy among them, to work with you on how to improve your operations. So we, we send a lot back out into the industry for data improvement. And from what I can tell, at least the ones that have come to us, there is a very strong motivation to get the data in line because you can't really make the good decisions without having good data to start with. So they recognize this as, you know, now I'm eating my broccoli so that I can play football on the weekend. Um, <clears throat> because they do realize they want to play in that game. They want to make their data, football being the analogy, they want to make their data good enough so they can start making improvements. And that's fascinating to me because I, I see the same thing in terms of there's a lot of people that want to 
improve their knowledge and visibility on data to make decisions. And a lot of it I've found is, is coming from, like you mentioned, the consolidation, people looking to exit their businesses to improve their value, or they're, they're being squeezed on their margins and they're, they're having to work out where the, where the money's going and how, how they need to improve. So what I'd like to dive into a bit, you've touched a bit on it around the, what, what, what do they need in terms of data? What are we typically needing to look at to, to make data-driven decisions in our business? You touched on a bit of billing, you've touched on a bit of time, time management. What else is there um, that you, you would typically um, look at? I mean, at? We, we have actually what we call a, um, gosh, I forgot the term we use for it internally, but it's a table that says these are the things you need to do. And if you do these, these are the reports and reports being, you know, the, the actual decision tools you can use to improve your business. So entering time is a is a bare minimum. Invoicing out of the system is a bare minimum. Uh, things that make it better would be, well, actually a bare minimum also would be trusting your PSA. One of the things that can really mess up time is people who say, hey, I don't want my clients billed under a fixed fee agreement because it's fixed fee, so I'm going to write off all that time. That's an operational issue. That's something that we would send back to, uh, to consulting or coaching. Uh, but they have to trust the PSA is going to do the job right and not just write off all the time that they don't want to individually bill. Um, and then there is everything else beneath it. Properly using agreement additions, properly parsing out agreement types and categories such that, you know, if you want to say, how am I doing on my uh, fully managed versus my non-fully managed agreements? Well, you have to separate those two out in different categories. Um, we would argue also you'd have to have very good uh, product line items and itemize all your invoices. One of the things that we find of late that people are doing better and better is having really robust itemized contract and agreement invoices. And by that, I mean, instead of saying, hey, we're going to charge $3,000 a month, they're going to say, well, we're going to charge $150 for 20 users. And then on top of that, because we are doing user-based pricing, and frequently, what you when you have user-based pricing, like you also have machine-based costs, and there's not a not, not a one-to-one -one ratio between machines and users. Well, then you can also itemize your costs separately. A lot of our clients work with uh, marketplaces and distributors that dynamically update the invoices, so we're finding that the data there gets better and better every year. Um, but those are the sort of things that it's uh, you know much like people talk about the maturity of a business. It, it is a journey from really not having great data to having better and better and better data. The bare minimum, again, is, is having the time, having the invoices, and then everything else just makes it more robust. It means that if you want to find a problem, we'll talk about this in a minute, it's the ability to peel back the onion and get a layer deeper and a layer deeper as to what your real problem is. So, uh, It covers a broad gamut there, and I, I'm curious from you saying you've seen like a thousand companies and help them improve their data. What, in terms of a maturity journey, what, what, what are the typical problems that they are solving through using data? I mean, the, the, the typical, when you say typical problems, so the way that we look at everything is there's one problem that everyone is trying to solve. And maybe it's a little different now with M&A and it's not people owning their business for 20 years. But it, it kind of boils down to the same thing, and that is, how do I reliably take home more money every month? That's the real base of where, um, of what people are trying to solve for. 
Well, if you're not bringing home enough money, then you say, well, it is my projects, my T&M, my, my, my agreements. Okay, if it's my agreements, is it because they're mispriced or is it because I'm working too hard? Well, if it's I'm working too hard, can I find the individual areas? So we actually see in driving profitability, because really we're talking about is profitability, it's trying to understand where the distinct areas are. We are trying very hard, and the analogy that I like to think of is we're trying very hard for people to focus on the trees and not the forest. If you have 30 clients, what you frequently will find is that there's three to five of them that are real laggards in terms of productivity and profitability. If you fix those three to five, you could see an outsized meaningful jump in your business. You have 30 clients, we're asking you to look at 10 to 20% of them. And you can get possibly a 10 to 20%. And I'm not making up these numbers, almost every client we look at, there is the potential for a 10 to 20% increase in recurring revenue just by finding agreements that are mispriced. Just a couple of them. So you don't want to boil the ocean. You want to really focus on a, on a laser sight on where your problems are. So which clients are doing poorly? What's the source of, of problem at that client? If it's an agreement, is it pricing? Is it utilization? If it's pricing, you go back and you revisit the pricing. If it's utilization, you try to understand, well, what kind of work are we doing abnormally for that client versus every other client? And then you have, give it to operations. You say, can I fix that problem? So when you say track a number, yes, we want to see people's profitability grow over time. But the way you get there is by tactically looking at opportunities within the data to say, well, here's an issue that I can address. How do I take, and I, I don't know how multilingual your, your, your audience is, so I'll be uh, English only on this, but how do I take a plain English question, use data, and convert it into a plain English answer? How do I say, well, where do I find one to two points of EBITDA growth? Oh, you are doing an outsized number of, a portion of your time on new user onboardings at this client. If you fix that, that's a half a point right there. That's a great handoff, how data can point you in exactly what the right direction is. Data is never going to fix a problem for you. At best, it will, it will put you halfway there, at which case it's then on you to say, well, now I know where I'm going to spend my time. Because, you know, all of our clients are um, resource constrained. They can't do everything. So you want to kind of hand, data should be able to hand them the things that have the highest return on their effort. And those will be the small fixes that will have an outsized return on profitability. That's, um, that's a good bit of wisdom there. Because um, I think a lot of people think just by having the data, all the problems are magically solved. Um, and uh, If that's what having... they think they're being told. I, I've been on <laughs> hundreds of sales calls and I try to dissuade them of that being that what we're selling. We're selling them the opportunity to fix the right problem. And I completely agree with that because I think from my experience coaching people in this industry for the last six years, the data, like you said, opens up the insights of what's wrong and what can be fixed, but it requires a big mindset shift um, to actually go about making those operational changes. And like you highlighted there around agreement profitability and the agreements aren't priced right. I see that as a common issue time and time and time again. And a lot of the time it's as simple as no one's done a price rise in five or six years and they're still on legacy arrangements. Um, so it that could be that where they've added 10 users and they never changed the, the quantity on the agreement. When you start to see things that are really out of whack, you take a deep dive where there's a specific problem. And it's usually one or two legacy clients, not the entire portfolio. You're, I agree completely. 
And, and that's a very good point, going back to what you, you were making around the um, the granularity of the data around a, using a, agreements as an example. The common wisdom and the common attitude in the industry has been, well, we just bundle it up, we do one price, and we don't worry about the costs under it because we'll track that separately. We, we, we've got that. But like what you pointed out, without seeing that information, we don't actually really know the results. and. Typically, they're worse than what we think, um, from my experience. Well, I mean, to that point, well, there's a couple of things, if I, if I may. One is, if you think about a contractor and you bundle everything, and it'll just it'll all work itself out, what if a client needs one BDR device and another client needs four, or some other high-ticket item that they're using? Well, there's a lot more revenue when you sell four, but you're not selling labor. It doesn't mean that you should give the one with four BDR devices that much more time. You really have to separate how much labor you're selling and how much product you're selling. And it gets pretty complicated when you don't charge for product. I'm not saying you have to. As I said, many people charge per user and throw in all the tools, which is, I think, a very good business model. But you need to know how much, how many, how much is there in tools. Because you might sit there and say, oh, you know what, I think $150 is the right amount per user per month or, or whatever number you're using. Without realizing that you're being overly generous with the tools you're including with that 150. So yes, people need to, to, to pay attention there, absolutely. What, what, other, what other things have you experienced that people should be paying attention to that they're not? Oh gosh, there's, there's so much. <clears throat> Productivity of engineers, and this is something that we built actually almost at the direction of uh, your colleagues in the States, uh, you know, uh, the PAX 8 folks. One of the things that, you know, I'd say there are things that I hear that I, I ignore. You know, my data is good or bad, I ignore that. Another thing that when I hear it is somebody asks me a, que asks me a question and I say, well, you, ha you can't ask that question. And that question is, how do I tell the efficiency of my engineers or how do I tell what their utilization is? I said, well, you can't ask that question. If you, some, 10 people tell me about engineering efficiency, I can get 10 different answers. So what is it you specifically want to know? Well, I want to know if my people are covering their head. Okay, that's a great question. And one of the things that we built into our system is the ability to track the revenue productivity of engineers. It's always a challenge if an engineer puts in extra time on a fixed fee arrangement, that's billable time. And if you're measuring billable hours in a week, that individual will look amazing. If that individual is done working every day at 2 p.m. and just dumps his, la his or her last three hours on a fixed fee arrangement thinking, it's not going to hurt the client. We're not charging them more. Well, they look like they're very productive, but they're not because they're not consuming revenue generating time. So we find people pay pretty close attention to how revenue productive people are and then compare that to their compensation. Are they covering their heads? The, the rule of thumb generally is, is 3x. But it could be different depending on how much project work they do versus time materials versus agreement time. So that's something that we, we see people tracking very much now. That's a very good one, the revenue productivity, um, because I think everyone's stuck in the billable hours of the past of, because we're used to the time and materials and we haven't really evolved to the managed service provider. Yeah, no, they, and they need to, because again, if, if, if I'm being compensated, if I'm getting a, an incentive plan based on how revenue productive I am, 
well then I want to work on as much revenue as possible. I want to produce as much revenue, and I'm an engineer, I want to produce as much revenue as possible for the company, for the MSP. Not just do billable hours, but I want to see that that maps to revenue that's generated. And all of a sudden, I as an engineer, I'm so closely aligned with the goals of management. I'm not just trying to dump hours, I'm trying to see how much revenue, how much dollar productivity I can have. <clears throat> Excuse me, and that really does a great job aligning the true interest. There's always a way to game a system, um, but I think this really puts guardrails and limits those opportunities by trying to get people to be revenue productive and aligning interest with, with management. In terms of the money, the money side with staff, um, what do, what are you typically seeing with owners? Are they very willing to share the money side, the profitability, how much people are earning, or are they typically quite guarded around that side when they're when they're working with their leaders and their, their staff to share that sort of data? Sure. So um, I'll, I'll answer that in a couple of ways. One is uh, we find that the more evolved companies really do not want to share employee costs. Like that's not something that we see people giving access to. You know, you don't get to know what the person in the desk next to you is earning. But you do know, you get to know how productive they are. You can figure out how that maps to, to earnings on your own. But people, we find that more evolved companies are allowing themselves to share that um, because it's a team effort. And if you find somebody's dragging you down, you kind of need to know what they're doing. You want everyone to be being more productive and more efficient because it helps everyone. So we do find a lot of companies sharing productivity, revenue productivity. Not necessarily, well, you've covered your comp by three times so we know what your paycheck is every week but they do share revenue productivity. And to that point, one of the interesting things, you know, we developed MSP CFO, we developed it, you know, I, I came from it from an analytical standpoint and I'm always amazed at the practical use cases. We have a, a report in our system that shows graphically, basically how well an agreement is doing versus how well you expect it to do. It's a simple bar chart, lines, bars below the line means it's less productive a less profitable lines above means it's more. We started finding not only are people sharing stuff with their employees, we found people are taking this chart and sharing it with their clients at their QBRs and annual contract renewals to say, hey, listen, this really isn't working out for us. We need to think about how either we don't include certain work types, uh, we limit certain types of work, you know, we won't do, we'll do five new users a month. If you have heavy chain, then chain churn, rather, you pay for the ones above that. Or they'll say, listen, you need to pay a little bit more. And I was shocked because I guess I don't come from a world where you share that kind of information with your clients. But um, that's, it was many years ago. I'm less shocked now. But I, what I've found is that it's if you walk in to a conversation with a client or you walk in with a conversation with an employee with data about how they're doing, how they're really doing, and how that impacts, like, the goal, the goal of the company is to make more money. The goal of a company is to service a client well. Data is so empowering. If you, I, the, having that information drives engineers to be more productive. Having that information allows you to have the difficult conversations with your clients. What, and if I may continue, we have a, a, a chart that we show where we stack rank the clients and we break them into fifths, into quintiles. The bottom 20% is in the first quintile. Let's say we're looking at a client with, you know, let's say that, they, again, they have 30 clients, have partnered with 30 clients, and they'll f we'll have six 
or five rather in that bottom or six rather in that bottom 20%. They'll know about four of those. One of them is a surprise, typically. And one of them, oh, that's a good client, but the period we're looking at, they had some security incident. We dumped it a bunch of hours. It's fine. It doesn't happen often, but that's the reason they were unprofitable. And the thing that always surprised me isn't the one that was a surprise that they didn't really know about because maybe they didn't have the data. It's the four they knew about and never did anything. And then we come back to them six months, 12 months, 18 months later in our, our, our update calls. And they say, you know what? Those clients are all handled. We had a price increase. We had a conversation about what's included under agreement. And the only thing that changed is, is the courage that the data gave them to have that difficult conversation. When people in their gut feel a certain way, they may, if they don't have the data to back it up, they may be hesitant to, to have that difficult decision discussion. I think it's a very good point. It's, um, it's not necessarily data driven decisions. It's, um, most of us in, in small business are more emotional thinkers, not really thinking about true ROI and logic, but the data, I love how you said the data gives the courage to actually take an action uh, or or removes the excuse for not taking an action, which is just it's important as well. Yeah, but that's also what makes it a little bit scary. As I said, when we work with clients, everybody's got issues. Nobody has a perfect set of data, whether it's a very small issue or, or, or a larger issue. So when we give people access to our system, to MSP CFO, we say, hey, listen, please do not do anything. Maybe for a month, maybe for two, maybe longer. Because as you say, data gives you the strength to walk into a room and tell somebody they're going to have to give you more money or talk to an employee and say, listen, this isn't working out or I'm putting you on a plan. If the data is wrong, you're empowered to have the wrong discussion. So we say, listen, you can play with this if you promise. And it's weird because they're giving us money and we're telling them not to do anything with what, they, what they're buying. But we're saying, please, please, please don't do anything until we're comfortable the data is correct and then have at it. But when you go from being hesitant because you don't have the great data to being confident, but the data is still not great, then you're in a dangerous place. And then we want to bring them to where the data is good and they can you know, trust everything. I think, again, that's some very wise advice. I've seen some people make some very bad decisions with incorrect data. Uh, one, of the, one of the things I've seen way, way back was a company that, thought they were losing money. So they, they ended up making the tough decision that they needed to sack four staff. After they sacked them, a couple of more people left because they thought it was a sinking ship. And it turned out the bookkeeper hadn't actually put in the, um, quite a few of the invoices over quite a few months and they, the revenue was missing. Um, they were actually profitable and they made all these decisions because they didn't think to check if the data was right or not. Yeah, that's, that's a nightmare of mine, that we're going to give somebody bad data and they're going to make a decision on it. So we, we really try hard to avoid that. And I'll so tell you, I, take that one step, one step further, if I may. Um, yeah. You know, when COVID happened, uh, we got on calls and we said, you know, we don't really do this for people because we, don't, we, don't, we only go up to the profitability of the client. We don't go for overall profitability. We said, listen, it is your fiduciary responsibility to yourself, excuse me, to have a budget. To say, listen, if I lose 10% of revenue, what's my P&L going to look like? Do I have to cut ahead? Do I have to cut my expenses? Do I have to tighten my belt? 
and I don't know what it was like in, in Australia, but in the U.S., COVID really didn't have that negative of an impact on the MSP space. Some people in hospitality clients, yes, they got hit very, very hard. But it really wasn't that awful. But the people who just said, listen, there's awful things going on in the world. I'm going to cut all my expenses, and I'm going to really cut away the meat with the fat. If they had a budget and they said, let's plan for a downside and see if that happens, if they had the data, they would have made better decisions. Instead of just, as you say, with their gut. I'm sorry. I interrupted. I, I, no, I think that's that's a really good point around COVID and, and highlighting the maturity of people. I, I saw the same. And the industry was very much similar here that um, we were pretty much the same. We got some spikes because of the um, government incentives and the, the drive to cloud migration sped up. But the people that had a plan and knew their data were a lot, not just um, better placed to make decisions, they were a lot less stressed as well because they knew what was going on and they were held in control. The, the people that didn't have a plan and didn't know their data were jumping at shadows all the time every day and they were they was so stressed um, that they were starting to make really poor decisions consistently because of that stress reflex and they had nothing to counter against it. They were trying to make gut feel decisions and their gut feels were wrong. So I think that that's an excellent, excellent um, light to shine on on that area. Um, and, and and just jumping around a little bit, I, we've been talking quite a bit around like um, tech revenue productivity. What other what other and agreement profitability? What other um, operational type metrics um, have you seen from your experience that people have been looking at that have helped make them more money that they probably wouldn't have seen without this kind of data? Right. So it really is about parsing out the information. Um, <clears throat> so looking at things like fixed fee tickets and projects to say which kinds of projects are priced better than others. Um, you don't want to compare all your projects as one because there are different types. And you do want to um, say, well, th this project I'm comparing to a similar one. I can see whether this one is better or worse. And the worst one, I can do a deep dive on why. I can say this, this type of project is priced better or worse. And, and again, one of the things that we look at is, as I said, I think I said earlier, is contribution per hour, gross profit per hour invested. And one of the things that we also try to, with that, we try to uh, help our clients understand what that really means. That means when you send an hour out to work on a client, how is that going to come back to you in terms of gross profit? Now, it can come back from servicing an agreement efficiently. It can also come back from the margin you get on, on SaaS sales on recurring agent sales. And we have a lot of clients that focus so singularly on the pricing and profitability of their agreements, they lose sight of the fact that, you know, with a, a good but not wonderful project, there may be a hundred or $200,000 of capital expenses, which is a margin you get as well. There may be some overage in hours you get because you have the agreement. So we like looking at the entire relationship because they can make money in any which way. And that's something that we think people always need to focus on, which is, you know, don't just focus on, obviously, the majority of most of our managed service client, clients are managed services, but they do other things. And they wouldn't get the other things if they didn't have the managed services. So you have to all look at it bundled together. Um, so it's a great way of comparing clients 
It's a great way of identifying trends in the business. And if you focus on the overall profitability, then you will you say, well, this might not be a great client, but we sell lots of physical products to them. I'm in a great agreement, right? You sell lots of physical products, which makes them a good client with a bad agreement. And so many people focus just on the agreement. Why do, why do you think that is? It's the headline. It's what people identify as their business. They identify themselves as managed service providers. I think this is less so, but when we first started out, I think there was a certain confidence and arrogance by saying, hey, I'm a managed service provider. I don't do transactional work. I'd look at their P&L and, you know, 50, 60% of their revenue would be managed service labor revenue, which is most of their business. But that means, you know, 40 to 50% isn't. And they don't like talking about it. They don't like saying that they're a break-fix shop. And they're not a break-fix shop, but it's still a part of their business. They still sell physical products. Uh, maybe less so now in a, in a cloud world, but they still do implementations. They still do office moves. All of that is there. Um, so, I, again, I, I don't know why they don't like to talk about it, but it absolutely is, it's, again, how much money can I bring home? If you do projects poorly, you can't bring money home. If you overlook profitable projects, you're putting those that revenue at, at risk. That money you bring home at risk, yeah. I, I think that's a really important point. Um, I, and, and the reason why I asked why you thought that was the case is, I agree. Like, I think everyone's got stuck in that generic thought leadership of business is based on recurring revenue, and that that's all we do. But I liked how you said earlier around actually it's the gross profit that we make. That's the tr that's the true measure of what we're actually going to end up with in the bank account uh, after we have expenses. It's gonna it's gonna whittle down even further, but. We don't have good gross profit across all those sort of areas that we um, deliver in our businesses. It, it's not going to filter through. So I think this is even more important as we're shifting, the industry is shifting to new, um, new offerings, new solutions, new things that we're going to have to do that we haven't done in the past. And we're not going to be able to charge um, a fixed price recurring agreement like we have with our end user support and infrastructure management, we're getting into more consulting, we're getting into robotic process automation, AI, very different things that we haven't done before. So I, I just think it was really important to reiterate your, your point on that. Yeah, no, I, I mean, people don't like to admit it. I mean, I guess they think of transactional money as like the, uh, the, 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 the sort of bad step cousin who they don't really want to talk about at the family of affairs, but it's real money. And I, I think that's a shame. And I, I think it goes back to the point that you've been making the whole way through is that you, you've got to have visibility across multiple things in, in, in a granular fashion. And, and what I'm curious from your perspective for the average, for the average technology business out there, what is the level of granularity that is suitable for them? Because I've seen people over-engineer their data ridiculously um, for, for not much not much benefit. So obviously, you know, a map where one inch equals one inch at scale isn't really a map that helps you. <clears throat> so you do need something. Uh, the granularity, you definitely can take too far. But as I said, the way that we encourage people to drive profitability 
is to think about it in terms of, you know, it's, it's a path, you're peeling an onion, it's going on a journey. Where's my profitability? Well, there needs to be an improvement. Which one of my clients are less profitable? Okay, I figured that out. Why is that client less profitable? Which line of business? Oh, it's the agreements. And again, I'm going to keep picking on the agreements, although it, it, it isn't always. Why is the agreement unprofitable? Because, not because I mispriced it, but because I'm overworking for the amount of, you know, for the number of seats that I'm covering. Why am I overworking it? Well, I can look at the type, subtype, and item, and this person has, you know, uh, oh gosh, twice as many password reset issues as another client. So maybe we need a password reset tool or training for them. So to be able to drill down to that level, you do need a certain amount of granularity. You can get there and say, well, it's an operations issue and then we'll figure it out if you don't have that. But the more you have, the deeper you can get to the more discrete a problem you're looking at. So, I, I mean, I haven't seen anything truly insane in terms of it. I, I think there are standard templates and I know that Academy promotes a, a template of type, subtype, and item. I'm sure you could take it six levels deeper. Um, I'm not sure I see the value in that. But you should have data to a point where you're going to do something with it. Where you're going to say, I'm, I'm glad I have this level because this is where I would hand off from data to a person actually doing stuff. And you want to make the job of the person easy enough, but you don't want to, you do have to acknowledge that somebody has to do something and that data won't do it for you. So I haven't seen it crazy, but I, and I, most people I see need more, not less from where they are today. This has been, this has been a very informative session. I, uh, I've been enjoying it a lot and we've covered a lot of different things um, of how to help people make data driven decisions and make more money. What do you want people to really take away from this session? And if they were to take one next action out of this, what what would your advice be? They have to ask themselves a question. We do this when we start with, with new clients and new prospects. We say, listen, if you came into the office tomorrow and say, I think I can make more, my business more profitable if I just did fill in the blank, you should know what that is. You should know what you want to know. And we can obviously help them. You can help them try to understand what other people have done. But if they understand that, then you can start on the path to finding out how data answers that question. Again, as I said before, data is what exists between a plain English question and a plain English answer. Um, but they have to start with the right question. And the question isn't, I want to know what my cash balances are, which obviously is important in a different way. It has to be, I would change something if I knew something. And what is it that they want to know? And if they start thinking that way, I think that will lead them to understanding the value of the data. Going back to our original analogy, I want to play football a lot better than I had been. Well, maybe you should start eating better meals. What's going to drive the improvement that you're looking for? That's some very sage advice. And I think that's an awesome, awesome point to wrap up on. And I... I hope that people who have been um, listening along today have taken a lot out of out of your wise words, and it, it is very much a journey. Um, it's not going from a low maturity level with okay data to having it all perfect and being super mature. It's a it's like you said, peel that onion, take that take that step by step approach, and chip off one thing at a time, and just and it all adds up. Um, 
immensely. So thanks so much for joining me, Larry. It's been fantastic and I look forward to the next time. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be on. Thanks, mate.